Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And this is a part two of the MakerBot story. So if you've not heard part one, I recommend listening to the episode that published before this one, because otherwise you're coming in in medias race. So when I left off at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that MakerBot's first 3D printer, the Cupcake CNC, could produce an object that was up to four inches per side, well, five inches tall. So you could get... Uh, a pretty decent-sized object if you wanted to. And the MakerBot community was creating tweaks and upgrades to the printer and sharing them on the associated website called Thingiverse. And the MakerBot team was hard at work creating the next generation of 3D printers with an eye toward moving out of the kit space eventually. Because kits, by their very nature, limit the market you can sell to. Typically, you're only going to really sell to hardcore hobbyists and makers because they're the ones who are willing to put in the work necessary to put together these things. Uh, they get a lot of satisfaction out of that. There is something to be said. Like, if you've ever made anything, really, but you know, people who build their own computers, they can tell you that there's a sense of satisfaction when you connect everything and you get it to work properly. Um, and a lot of the hobbyists take a lot of joy out of that. But it does limit the number of people you're going to sell to, because there are other folks out there, such as myself, who, while I have an appreciation for that skill, I don't possess it myself. And so while it might take the typical builder 80 hours to put together one of these devices, for me it would be forever, because I'd spend about five hours trying to put it together and then give up. So in order to not limit themselves to that hardcore audience of makers and hobbyists, they had already started planning out building fully assembled uh, printers in the future. On the company side of things, MakerBot seemed to be a really interesting place to work. According to an article in Wired titled, The 3D Printing Revolution That Wasn't, employees worked at MakerBot not to get rich quick by being part of an early startup with hopes that some other company was going to do a big buyout and then you'd have a nice payout as uh, your company got acquired. Instead, they were part of the company because they believed in the company's mission, which was tied closely with the rep-rap philosophy of disrupting manufacturing by putting it in the hands of the common consumer. The company culture was loose, and jobs were pretty vaguely defined. Apparently, you might be helping people pack kits for shipping one day, and then the next day you're tweaking product designs on the latest version of your hardware. In that article, a former MakerBot employee named Matt Griffin said there was no real formal structure to the company in those early days. He said no one was really fooling themselves. Uh, they all knew that ultimately that was unsustainable from a business perspective, that they were going to have a, have a more formal uh, organizational strategy moving forward. But in the early days of MakerBot, the important thing was just do whatever needs to be done at that given time and then worry about the next thing after you're finished with the first thing. Within the first year of being in business, the company had made 600 cupcake CNC kits. And according to Bree Pettis, one of the co-founders of MakerBot, the cost of all the parts for the kits added up to about $650. They were selling them for $750 unassembled. So there was just $100 more than what it cost to get the parts together in the first place. And that's 
before you start figuring in stuff like labor, of putting all the pieces together, putting them in boxes, shipping them out. So razor-thin margins, you might say. A bit more than a year and a half after Zach Smith, Adam Mayer, and Bree Pettis had launched the company, they introduced their second model of 3D printer. This one was called the Thingomatic. Like the Cupcake CNC, you could buy this printer as a kit, or you could have it fully assembled. The kit cost $1,250, and the fully assembled printer was $2,500, making it the same cost as the fully assembled Cupcake CNC had been when it first debuted. The Thingomatic had some new features. For one thing, it could print multiple objects in one print job as long as those objects didn't overlap on the print bed. This was thanks to a new technology called the Automated Build Platform. MakerBot designer Charles Pax had created that feature. The build platform had a heated surface and was mounted on a belt system underneath uh, the platform. So this belt system could actually move the physical location of the platform underneath the extruder. So the printer would you know, print out the first object. Then the platform could move out from under the first object. The printer could print out an additional object on that same building surface. So you could print multiple things at once. You didn't have to manually remove each piece as soon as it was finished, as long as you could arrange the two objects to be printed on uh, sufficiently far enough parts on the uh, platform and not have the extruder, you know, mess up whatever it was you had just printed. That was a real danger. If you didn't take that into account, then you could have a print job, if it's tall enough, get to a point where it would come into contact with the extruder as it's trying to print the second print job and everything would mess up. So you had to pay attention uh, uh, to your designs. Uh, The system also included a brush to clean off the nozzle between the print jobs. This was important because otherwise the plastic could kind of gum up and cause printing errors. If you've ever used a hot glue gun, it's kind of like that. The automated build platform was one of the upgrades that was originally created for the old Cupcake CNC, but now it was coming in as an optional feature on the Thingomatic. But this new printer also had a slightly smaller build volume than the Cupcake. That one, as you were, as I mentioned earlier, could produce an object that was four inches long, four inches wide, and five inches tall. But the Thingomatic would knock that down to just be four inches in every direction. So it couldn't be quite as tall as the Cupcake CNC could manage. MakerBot unveiled the Thingomatic at the 2010 Maker Faire New York event. Like the Cupcake CNC, this printer was an open source hardware device and was registered under the GNU license, which gave users the opportunity to alter the design and make adjustments or improvements. And like the Cupcake CNC, MakerBot would incorporate some of those designs into future versions of the printer itself. So the design of the Thingomatic changed with the community's input. The open source philosophy was continuing to pay off in that it was fueling innovation at an incredibly rapid pace. The The cool thing about this is that, you know, 3D printers were meant to help with innovation in that they would allow you to rapidly prototype stuff. You could come up with a design for a product, print out your design, test it to see if it makes sense, and if it doesn't, you could go right back to the drawing board and lose very little time in the process. Well, not only could the printer do that, but the fact that it was open source meant that people could rapidly prototype the printer itself, changing it. So the very thing that the printer did 
could also contribute to the printer's improvement over time. I thought that was kind of a cool recursive quality of 3D printers with uh, MakerBot in particular. The community of MakerBot owners and the Thingiverse users, that website where everyone was putting their designs, they were happy to show off their creations, and they were happy to benefit from the designs made by other people. MakerBot was seeing a big benefit as that, from that as well, uh, both as it continued to encourage a really enthusiastic base of users and also to directly benefit from their designs by incorporating them into the future versions of, of the MakerBot printers. But there was a downside to that approach as well. And the downside was that because the hardware and the software were open source and openly available to look at, other people or companies could use those designs to make their own 3D printers and compete against MakerBot within that market. Now, in the early days, that wasn't really a big problem because MakerBot commanded about a quarter of the market in 3D printing in those early years. But the overall market was also really, really small. The small markets provide very little incentive for competitors. Why would you jump into a tiny market? It has very few customers there, and especially if one is already dominated by an established company, it could be very difficult to make any headway. But as the 3D printer market would grow, that would become a bigger problem. Now, throughout 2010 and 2011, MakerBot continued selling Cupcake and Thingomatic kits. Behind the scenes, teams were working on the next generation of MakerBot devices. And they also secured $10 million in venture capital funding in August 2011, some people say that that was the beginning of potentially serious trouble because a capitalist, a venture capitalist, is making an investment. And an investment means you want to see a return. You want to see some profit from that investment. Around that time, the company was also starting to get attention from mainstream media, not just the tech and geek journals out there, but mainstream journals, things like you know Rolling Stone magazine or, or the Colbert Rapport. Uh, by the fall of 2011, MakerBot had around 70 employees and had added another office to accommodate the growth the company was going through. In early January 2012, the company unveiled a new printer called the Replicator. This would not only be the most ambitious printer to date, it would also mark the pivotal moment when MakerBot would shift away from that open source philosophy the company had embraced. So the replicator was open source. It had not quite abandoned this yet, but it was the beginning of the end. Uh, the replicator included dual extruders, which meant that for the first time, MakerBot makers could print in two different colors of plastic for the same build. You could have a filament of plastic of one color going to one extruder and a filament of plastic of a different color going to the second extruder. And then based upon your design, that would tell the printer which plastic to use for any given moment while it was building out those layers. So you could have a, a two-tone uh, object when you were done, whatever two colors you wanted, really. It also increased the build size, so you could build much larger objects than you could before. Now users could print stuff that was 225 millimeters long, 145 millimeters wide, and 150 millimeters tall, or about 8.9 inches by 5.7 inches by 6.1 inches. The replicator was the first MakerBot printer that was also sold fully assembled. There was no kit option anymore. So this was, again, MakerBot's move to try and, uh, and tap into a potentially larger customer base because now they could sell to people who weren't 
who didn't feel confident that they could put such a thing together. The initial price for the replicator was $1,750, which is a princely sum to be sure, but still a fraction of what most 3D printers would cost. Even in the prosumer market, you were typically looking at devices that were in the tens of thousands of dollars. There were some competitors that were coming out with very cheap 3D printers around the same time, um, but they were not at the same level of quality or name recognition as MakerBot. The replicator had a few quality problems of its own, including vulnerabilities to static electricity. Uh, there were reports that if you were to put in a, a card containing designs into the MakerBot replicator and you had a static charge on that card, it could cause something to pop. And then you would have a uh, non-working replicator. And the company couldn't afford to just ignore those problems. There was also increasing pressure rising from competitors. And so MakerBot was at work on the successor to the replicator, which would come out less than a year after the replicator debuted. And that would be the first 3D printer MakerBot would offer that would at least be partly proprietary in nature and not entirely open source. The open source philosophy would no longer become the guiding principle for the company's efforts. And it would mean lots of big changes. I'll explain more in a moment, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So the original Replicator was still an open source hardware project, but it would prove to be the last of those. And it was in part the reason why Zach Smith would end up leaving MakerBot or being forced to leave MakerBot might be the better way to put it. So earlier in 2011, before the Replicator had debuted, they actually had a totally different plan to move forward. And that plan was to create a super secret, low-cost, pre-assembled MakerBot that would be cheap enough for the average consumer. And they wanted to aim for a price tag that would make it about as expensive as your typical new video game console. So we're talking like, $500 or $600. That was a really ambitious goal, and it was something that they didn't think they could manage to do uh, working just out of the United States. They called this project the Mass Market MakerBot Project, or MMM, triple M. So to achieve this goal, Zach Smith took a small team of engineers and he went to China to set up a manufacturing strategy that would meet their needs because manufacturing in China is way less expensive than in the United States. Even when you factor in international shipping, you'd be saving a lot more money per unit. So in the fall of 2011, while Smith is in China working on this, Bree Pettis back in the United States was getting impatient. He wanted to have something to show off at CES. He had recently received quite a bit of money in venture capital for, uh, for MakerBot. And he felt like the updates to the MakerBot, uh, the mass market MakerBot device were sporadic and not nearly giving him enough progress each time he was getting one. So he decided to put his Brooklyn team of engineers on a new task to develop a brand new printer in time for CES, which again happens in January. So it was a super condensed timeline. Now, eventually, Brie Pettis decided to go with the New York-based design over the one that Zach Smith and his team were working on in China. 
And it was a much more expensive approach because it was nearly $1,800. It was $1,750. So that was a reversal on that original strategy they had leading up to CES 2012 where they were going to try and make a really affordable 3D printer for the average person. So the device the company showed off was more of a prosumer device, something that uh, someone who is going to use it for professional purposes might be able to to spend that kind of money, but your average consumer wasn't going to drop nearly $2,000 on a 3D printer that they barely knew how it worked. In April 2012, MakerBot chose formally to shut down its China operation entirely. Zach Smith was understandably frustrated. He really found himself at odds with Bree Pettis. They had... Uh, strong disagreements on the direction of the company. And according to Zach Smith, and in his own words, he said he was forced out of the company he had co-founded because his vision of where the company should go was uh, not compatible with where Bree Pettis wanted the company to go. And Bree was in the role of CEO at this point. By mid-2012, Zach Smith would leave MakerBot. He ended up traveling back to China and he was fascinated Uh, at the bustling manufacturing industry over in China. And also he was really excited because he would have access to very cheap parts there. He said the language barrier was a bit of a challenge, but he could get all the different stuff he would need to build the kind of devices he liked building for much less money than it would cost him in the United States. So he he lived in China for a while. He would continue working with the RepRap project, but he chose to divorce himself entirely from MakerBot. So he was the first of the three co-founders to leave the company. Now, according to the interviews and articles I could find from around this particular time in MakerBot's history, Bree had sort of emerged at this point as the face of the company out of necessity. He had already achieved a following in the Maker community because of his work with Make Magazine. So it seemed like a natural transition to make him sort of the, the voice and the face of MakerBot as well. And some would even compare him saying he was the Steve Jobs of MakerBot. Pettis himself said he really would prefer to be the Steve Wozniak of MakerBot. And if you know your Apple history, you know what the difference is there. In May 2012, as MakerBot engineers were working on the Replicator 2 design in secret, the company relocated to the Metro Tech Center in Brooklyn, a much larger space. They now had 125 employees. And then in August, the nail in the coffin for MakerBot's open-source approach arrived in the form of a Kickstarter project called the TangiBot. Now, the TangiBot was proposed by a guy named Matt Strong. The TangiBot was essentially a MakerBot clone. Strong's plan was to mass-produce these replicator clones in China to bring down the costs and sell the TangiBot at a significant discount in the United States. So in theory they would be indistinguishable from the replicator printers because he could use all the open source information. They would work on the same software. They would follow the same hardware design. They would print stuff from the Thingiverse just as well as a replicator could. And this was all possible because all of that information was open source. So there was nothing legally stopping him from doing this. However, In the open source community, it's considered pretty taboo to clone someone else's stuff and then to sell it as your own. Even if you're just attributing the other person, that's not considered super cool. It's not in keeping with the spirit of the community. 
And the MakerBot community largely rallied behind MakerBot, even in the wake of the quality problems that the replicator had suffered earlier that year. But Pettis now had a strong argument against open source in general. Someone had outright said they were going to make the same product that his company was making, but sell it for less money. So when MakerBot announced the Replicator 2, the company indicated that some of this technology was going to be proprietary. Many in the Maker community felt this was a slap in the face of the people who had supported MakerBot in its early days. It was an outright betrayal. Worse yet, there was a suspicion that MakerBot was going to incorporate improvements and designs that community members had created as part of Thingiverse, that the stuff that was going to be in Replicator 2 would be coming straight from the people who were going to get uh, rolled over by the fact that it was going to go with a proprietary approach. They weren't going to necessarily have their contributions attributed. They would see no benefit from it. And whereas they had been happy for MakerBot to succeed on in part because of their contributions earlier, that was with the understanding that they were all part of the same family and everything was transparent. Now, with a proprietary approach, stuff is being hidden away from the very community that had made this company possible. So they saw it as a stab in the back. Unlike the Replicator, the Replicator 2 had only a single extruder. So you were back to printing in just a, a one color. Uh, additionally, it could only print in PLA thermoplastic. It could not do ABS. The Replicator 2 increased the build area to 285 millimeters by 153 millimeters to 155 millimeters, or 11.2 inches by 6 inches by 6.1 inches, essentially. Layers of plastic could be as thin as 100 micrometers. A micrometer, by the way, is a millionth of a meter, and that would improve the resolution of the print jobs. It's kind of like the dots per inch metric we would use for your standard run-of-the-mill printers, or the pixel count we would use in the resolution of an image. The thinner the layers in a print job, the smoother the transition can be from layer to layer overall. So if you're printing an object that has a lot of curved surfaces, the result is a more smooth curved line. With thicker layers, you get more of a kind of jagged step transition between one layer and the next. You can really feel it. It feels like a series of ridges. Some of the proprietary elements included the metal case for the Replicator 2. It was the first time MakerBot was offering up a printer that had a metal case as opposed to their traditional balsa wood cases that had been uh, the, the, the casing for the previous printers. And they also had some proprietary software. So it wasn't just the hardware that was uh, no longer fully open source. The software followed suit. The company also showed off a Replicator 2X, the two experimental replicator. That added in some of the features that the Replicator 2 was missing, like it had the dual extruder, so you could print in two colors again, and also a heated platform to enable ABS printing. So you had essentially two different tiers of the Replicator 2. The Replicator 2 came out in September, and by that time, Smith had been long gone. He had left the company a few months earlier. Adam Mayer, the other co-founder along with Brie Pettis, would stay on with the company until October 2012. Now, what led Mayer to leave? I actually don't 
know. I'm not certain what led to his departure from the company. It might have been a similar disagreement with Pettis over the direction of the company, uh, the abandoning of the open source philosophy. I don't know for sure. Or maybe he just wanted to do something different. There's precious little published about his decision. But whatever the reason, by October 2012, MakerBot was a very different company. They had venture capitalists who were waiting to see a return on their investment. You had two out of the three original co-founders gone. They were shifting from open source to something at least partially closed off. And their community, which had been so supportive, was starting to fragment, and a lot of people were turning against the company. That fragmentation would spread to Thingiverse. The site updated its terms of service, which raised questions about attribution. There was a worry that if you were to upload your designs to Thingiverse, that MakerBot could make use of your designs and not even attribute you for it. And originally, it seemed pretty clear that if you authored a work on Thingiverse, you would get credit. And you might share a design with everybody else, and they might all be free to use it, but it was with the understanding that you would at least get credit for that design. The updated terms of service threw that into question, and there was a long time before MakerBot had any answers to people who were raising questions about that. And so some people began a move to put new designs on a different site rather than risk having their work appropriated by MakerBot. And whether that was a real possibility or not, the perception was that MakerBot was going to push into this closed ecosystem and you wouldn't be able to tell, so people began to abandon Thingiverse. Not everybody but some of the more passionate community members were. Pettis, for his part, would defend this decision to move to this sort of closed approach. He argued that the open source approach was unsustainable in the long run, that if a company were to keep doing that, it would eventually go out of business as a result. And so he said, if my goal is to create 3D printers for everyone, you know, something that everyone can afford and everyone can use, I have to change the way we do business. Otherwise, we will be run out of business and I'll never achieve that goal anyway. That was not the end of the problems with MakerBot. We'll talk about some more challenges the company faced in the following years in just a moment. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. In June 2013, a company called Stratasys came knocking with an eye toward acquiring MakerBot. Stratasys had been around since 1989, and it was also in the additive manufacturing and 3D printing business. The company had carved out a profitable space in the rapid prototyping industry. The deal, the acquisition deal, was for more than $400 million with an additional $200 million or so in performance-based earnouts. Some of the folks in the maker community viewed this as yet another sign that MakerBot had, in their minds, sold out. Now, at first, MakerBot was on the expansion again. They started hiring more people, and they started designing the next phase of 3D printers. And these would include some new features, some of which might have seemed a little excessive or maybe unimportant. They had stuff like Wi-Fi capability, that kind of thing. But Meanwhile, there was still this growing perception that MakerBot needed to produce some printers at the lower end of the market, stuff that was more affordable for your average consumer, like what the mass market MakerBot was supposed to be. 
It was stuff that MakerBot just hadn't managed to do yet. Now, according to that article in Wired that I mentioned earlier in this episode, at CES 2014, MakerBot was showing off three printers, and they weren't all fully operational, and yet they were still winning industry awards. Meanwhile, competitors were popping up with lower-priced printers, and that was starting to eat into the segment of the market that MakerBot had originally wanted to target when it pursued that mass-market MakerBot printer in 2011. Now, when customers had problems with their printers, however, things were more complicated than they used to be. They used to be able to solve those problems themselves. They could print out a replacement part. Uh, They could consult the Thingiverse, find out what was wrong, you know, the community forums, and print out a replacement and fix it themselves. They never had to bother anybody else. Or they might be able to rely upon someone in the community to help them out. But the proprietary nature of the hardware and the software meant that crucial details were being purposefully withheld from customers and competitors. And it was in order to protect the business. So it made sense from a business perspective, but now customers who were having problems with their printers were finding it more challenging to fix those problems. They couldn't always fix it themselves. And the company was struggling to find a way to have uh, consumer relations to answer these problems, repair issues, things like that, uh, in a timely manner. And in some cases, there just weren't any fixes to be had. There was even a class action lawsuit leveled against Stratasys and MakerBot. The focal point for the lawsuit was in the smart extruder component that was uh, a component in, in many of MakerBot's more recent printers. The lawsuit alleged that the company had knowingly included this particular component in its printers knowing that it wasn't working properly. So in other words, that the design was not really a good one, and they put it in their their products anyway. The lawsuit eventually was dismissed. There was a lack of evidence showing that the company had knowingly included a malfunctioning part, but it didn't help the reputation of the company. In September 2014, Bree Pettis would step down as the CEO of MakerBot, but he transitioned to become the head of Stratasys's Innovation Workshop. Jenny Lawton, who was the president of MakerBot at that time, would step up to become the interim CEO. Lawton had previously invested in MakerBot and had served as its chief strategy officer before she had become president. In 2015, things got pretty rough at MakerBot. It was not a good year for MakerBot or for its parent company. Stratasys was not performing as well financially as it had projected, And during the first quarter earnings call in 2015, Stratasys executives cited a slowing market as the real cause of the problem, that the 3D printer market was slowing down, that maybe they had already hit maximum penetration in the hobbyist market, and they had not really been able to leverage that into the broader consumer market. MakerBot sales were not performing as expected, and Jenny Lawton, who had only been the CEO since September of 2014, was moved to become the vice president of special projects over at Stratasys. And Jonathan Jaglum, who had been the general manager of Stratasys Asia Pacific Japan, became the new MakerBot CEO. Jenny Lawton would end up leaving Stratasys just a few months later, and so would Bree Pettis, the only remaining co-founder. He would also leave the company in June 2015. Now, initially, he would lead a new company called Bold Machines. This was actually the former Innovation Workshop division of Stratasys. Stratasys decided to spin out 
the Innovation Workshop as its own company, and Brie Pettis would become the head of that company. Later still, he would purchase another company that would change its name to Bantam Tools. This is a company that produces a computer-controlled milling machine. Milling machines cut material away to make models. So you could say he's gone back to sort of the opposite of 3D printing. But it does bring milling, uh, which has incredible precision, into the realm of the prosumer. And milling machines like 3D printers were once so prohibitively expensive that only big manufacturing companies could actually afford them. So he's sort of doing the same thing, but using a different methodology than uh, what he was doing with 3D printers. Back to MakerBot. In April 2015, Jonathan Jaglum led the company through a series of layoffs. He cut 20% of all the jobs at MakerBot in April. And in October of 2015, he did it again, knocking another 20% off. A big problem was that the company had sold fewer than half of the number of printers in 2015 as it had in 2014. You don't want to see that number going down year over year. In general, businesses really like to see those numbers go up. And this was the wrong direction. So things were looking a little grim. In 2016, the company made another big change. MakerBot would shut down its manufacturing facility in New York, outsourcing all of its manufacturing to China. So up to this point, all the MakerBot printers were largely being made and assembled in the United States. You know, there's some parts that probably came from other places, but most of the parts were being produced here in America. But in order to bring the costs of manufacturing down, they'd made the decision to shut down those U.S.-based operations and outsource everything to Chinese manufacturers. They do still have offices in New York, and there's still people who work for MakerBot in the U.S. It involves some developers and engineers, uh, some corporate personnel. Uh, the repairs department is located out of America. But all of manufacturing has been moved over to China. Jonathan Jaglum led the company to shift its focus a bit away from consumer 3D printers, which really was becoming hyper-competitive. Lots of budget models were coming out every year and eating into MakerBot's sales. So instead, he decided to focus on the educational and professional uses for MakerBot printers. This would keep the printers in a more... Uh, higher-end market than consumer markets. He could sell them for higher prices, uh, didn't have to worry about cutting costs to the point where it could make a more competitive product in the consumer space. And things kept changing. While the company would produce new printer designs that were made in China, again, trying to compete against an increasingly crowded marketplace and an increasingly disillusioned pool of consumers, the shuffling at the top of MakerBot had not quite finished. In January 2017, Jonathan Jaglum resigned as CEO, and MakerBot's president at that time was Nadav Goshen, who would be promoted to the role of CEO. The company is still in business today, though it is obviously a very different entity than the one that was founded back in 2009. All three co-founders are gone. The founding principle of an open-source uh, hardware and software approach is gone. A lot of the passionate community members are gone. Uh, a lot of the goodwill for Thingiverse has gone as well. And the manufacturing facilities in the United States are gone. More than 100 jobs are gone. So things have changed dramatically, obviously, for MakerBot. The company was probably 
chiefly responsible, I would say, for raising the profile of 3D printing, perhaps to the detriment of the industry overall. It may be that 3D printing became a mainstream phenomena a little too early before it was really ready to uh, to to settle in. If you think about that hype cycle that Gartner always is talking about, the inflated expectations part was probably particularly high for 3D printers. Maybe now we're finally on the pathway to having a more realistic and sustainable implementation of 3D printers. Whether or not MakerBot will play a large part in that future remains to be seen, but the company has had to weather some pretty serious storms over the past few years. And that wraps up our look at the MakerBot story so far. I hope that in a few years, I'll be able to revisit this topic and maybe have some really cool stuff to talk about. But it's kind of an unfortunate story as it stands when you look at how the people who truly love the company felt they were treated, uh, even people who were some of the founders of that company. But sometimes the reality of business means that those idealistic views have to uh, have to have to step aside. Uh, what do you guys think? I'm curious to hear. You can go to techstuffpodcast.com. That's our website that has the ways to contact us. Let us know what you think. Maybe give us suggestions for future episodes, whether it's a company, a technology, a person in tech, someone I should talk to, that kind of thing. Also, don't forget to head over to our merchandise store. That's over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. You can see all sorts of different things with all sorts of different designs and every single purchase goes to help the show so we greatly appreciate it and i'll talk to you again really soon for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 